Welcome to It's Your Money, a practical guide for managing the financial resources God has provided. Your host is Christian attorney and financial counselor, G. Edward Reed. Hello and welcome to It's Your Money. We are focusing today on uh, number 10 in our lesson, and that is the judgment bar of God. We're looking at the biblical principles of money management. Now, I'm just going to tell you that one of the chapters you may wish to read in this regard is Matthew 25. And actually, there's a chapter uh, written all in red in my Bible. These are the words of Jesus. And uh, there are three stories, the story of the ten virgins, the story of the parables, or the talents, the parable of the talents, and then the last one is the judgment of the Gentiles. And all three of them will uh, impact on us. The last one we sometimes call the parable of the sheep and the goats, but they really give a picture of how people spent their money. We know we must give an account, but let's look just quickly at the middle parable, starting with verse 14. This is Matthew chapter 25. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling in a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And he gave one five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on his journey. There's a lot we could learn here, but remember that uh, most everybody would like to have more money or they would like to be rich. But remember, God has given it to us according to our ability to manage. Sometimes people get money and they don't know how to manage it, and they get into worse shape than they were before. So we must understand how important this is. And also, he delivered his goods to them. And we're not talking about giving them you know, spiritual gifts like discernment or uh, ability to sing or preach or whatever. God has blessed us with assets, and this is important to know. And then he went on his journey. Well, it doesn't take a great deal of uh, insight to recognize that God has blessed each one of us and that we're his servants. Then he would receive the five talents when it traded with them and made other talents, or he improved them. Likewise, he had received two, gained also others. And he who had received only one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And then here's something interesting. Verse 19, after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. In other words, this was the day of reckoning. This is the judgment time. So he would receive five talents, came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more besides them. And his Lord said to him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'm going to make you rule over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And the one had done two. Remember, he also gained two more. He also received the commendation, Well done. But the one who had hid only, uh, who had only one had hid it, And he's the one who said, I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent. Look, here it is. What's yours? But remember, he was lazy and didn't use it properly, and uh, he did not get that good commendation, as you may remember. So there's a fascinating thing in this life, and we have the opportunity, according to God, using Matthew 7, 24 to 27, that we're building on the sand or on the rock. And uh, I'm going to go there just quickly in my Bible and would encourage you to do so. This is part of Jesus' famous sermon on the mountainside, and it's three chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7, but we're just going to look at Matthew 7, 24 to 27. It's the parable of the two builders. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, 
I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Now verse 26 says, Everyone who hears these things of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now, I frequently ask people, what really is the difference between these two men? What makes one wise and one foolish? And the answer is real simple. The wise man heard the words and did them. The foolish man heard the words but didn't do them. So we've gone through 11 sessions so far, and this is our final one, the capstone. And the big question is, you now have a better insight into God's word. What will we do with that? Will we practice it or not? There are many interesting situations in life, but it becomes more complex when we see all the things that are happening about us. Many people see no way out. In fact, Luke, the 21st chapter, has a real interesting passage, and I'll share it with you. It's verse 25, Luke 21, 25. And it says, and there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity. By the way, that's the only time the word perplexity is used in the whole Bible. And the word is, there's no way out. They're struggling in vain. And the sea and the waves roaring. In other words, this is a condition that people have. We already know that. But those stories of Matthew 25 are kind of interesting. There's three stories, and they all talk about uh, management in a sense. And we're talking about the first one, the parable of the ten virgins. We're talking about our needs then, things that we need to do to prepare for eternity. How much are we spending on you know, spiritual growth of our family? We're all eager to get a new TV or a new CD player, a new DVD or whatever, but have we spent time for good Christian books or have we taken our children on a mission trip? Those kind of things to instill the uh, importance of being involved with God's cause. There are other factors that you can look at here because there was actually buying and selling involved. Uh, we cannot you know, do this for another person, but it says those that were ready went in with him. The others had gone to buy something that they should have spent money on before, apparently. And when they came back, the answer was, uh, when they said, Lord, open to us, he said, assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. That's a sad situation to be in. The middle parable that we've just looked at talks about the talents, and that is our responsibility to the cause of God. Now, I hope you're getting a picture here. We've just read this. The third one is the story of the sheep and the goats, and that's helping others. Now, throughout this series, I've talked about three ways to spend money, our needs, the needs of others, and the needs of God's cause, and they're all right here in Matthew 25 in a way that you can see them. Now, this parable, or these parables, that is the one of the talents and the sheep and the goats, were given for last-day Christians. And we're told in volume one of the testimonies, uh, a real interesting passage here, it's page 197, and that is uh, this parable uh, important lesson was given to the disciples for the benefit of Christians living in the last days. The parable applies to the temporal means which God has entrusted to his people. God requires those who have possessions here to put them into the cause to spread the truth. And this is really, really important. So how do we multiply our talents? 
Now, we're not really saying that uh, if God gives me $100,000 that I need to have you know $200,000 when he comes back. That's not the point. We have to understand, have we used it for the advancement of God's cause? So in volume two of the Testimony 660, we're told uh, every soul saved is a talent gained. Six testimonies uh, actually uh, 448 talks about revenue to him in souls saved. So we're talking about multiplication of talents. Now, it's kind of a sad thing that sometimes as Christians, we can look back on our life and see that we've spent most of our money on ourselves. And sometimes people can look back and really not say anybody that they've brought into God's cause or they've been some benefit to at all. So we want to really look at the benefit of our lives in the multiplication of talents. We talk also about giving it all back to him. Matthew 25, when he returns, remember that everyone gives it all back to him. Now, this is really interesting because we talked in the last session about uh, estate planning. If God is the owner of everything, when we're done with it, what should we do? Give it back. In this case, all three gave it back to him. And then he returned it to them, the principal and the interest, which is quite fascinating. So we want to look at that. And we're going to get into something, and I'll try to illustrate this as I usually do with a few stories. But I want you to see the, uh, four, the third story here, and that's the story of the sheep and the goats. By the way, I've found, as I've studied Matthew 25 before, that all three stories, the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents and the parable of the sheep and goats, all talk about God's people. Remember, the good people and the bad people, the sleepy, all of them were sleeping, but the, the foolish virgins and the wise virgins are all called virgins. They all believe the truth. They all practice the truth and so on. But some were ready and some weren't based on, you know, in this particular case, that they were not ready. In the middle one, he called his own servant. So it's his own people again. But sometimes people mistakenly think that the sheep and the goats are the righteous and the wicked. They're not, because if God wanted to do righteous and wicked, he'd have sheep and hogs, for example. You know, the unclean and the clean. But here you have two clean animals, and they're divided because or based on the way they spent their money. So we're going to look at the third parable really quickly, and then we're going to look at some insights in how to do this. This is uh, Matthew chapter 25 again, starting with verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd divides his sheep and the goats. Sometimes people think he's going to divide people on the basis of what they believe doctrinally, you know, what they believed about any particular topic of the Bible. But that's not what it says here. The sheep he's going to put on the right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, how do they get on that side? The answer is a pretty simple one, and that is that they... Uh, he actually says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. And I was naked and you clothed me and I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And then these righteous people say, Lord, we didn't see you hungry or feed you or thirsty or give you a drink. When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? But the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Now listen very carefully to this. God does not 
ask us what we believe. He will simply decide whether we're safe to save for eternity on how we spent our money and our willingness to help others. This is really incredible because he knows that we've been changed from selfishness to love, and that's quite important for us to all understand. Now, on the other side, he says to those that are wicked, you depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, because I was hungry and you didn't give me anything to eat. I was thirsty, you didn't give me any drink. I was a stranger, you didn't take me in. I was naked, you didn't give me any clothes, and so on. You understand, then they're going to say, well, Lord, we didn't know it was you. If we'd known it was you, we would have done it. And that makes me stop and think about the kind of clothes that I donate to our welfare groups. You know, if I'm doing this to God, would I wait until everything is shot? Or would I give some good things away from time to time? You understand that. Then he said, uh, then he will answer them. This is verse 45 and 46 of chapter 25 in Matthew. I say to you, inasmuch you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these will go away to everlasting punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So you understand that God understands whether we're safe to save by whether or not we help others and uh, help advance his cause that way. So we're going to talk a little bit about the needs of the poor. We understand that God allows the poor to be with us to determine whether what our reaction will be. Uh, we have a little statement from volume 5 of the testimonies, page 150 and 151, which I think is pretty fascinating also. And that is, in every church there should be an established a treasury for the poor. Let each member present a thank offering to God once a week or once a month, as is most convenient. The real interesting thing about that, has God blessed us? Do we have a self-denial box where we're willing to help others? And this is pretty fascinating because it says the offering will express our gratitude for the gifts of health, of food, of comfortable living, our families, those kind of things. And according as God has blessed us with these comforts, we will lay up by the, for the poor the suffering and the distressed. It's, it's fascinating, really, when you go through it. Recently, I heard a pastor give two whole sermons on the responsibilities of Christians to the widows and the fatherless, according to the Bible. Much more is said about that than the average person would recognize. Well, we have some interesting things to think about. I want to review just briefly what we looked at there, then we're going to another area. I would like to call your attention especially to the fact that in Matthew 25, we're encouraged to be ready in the first parable, to work for God while we're waiting in that second parable, and then our willingness to share with others, to demonstrate to God that we've been transformed from selfish people, which comes rather natural, to being willing to help others. Now, this is not an easy thing to do. This is a level of stewardship beyond which, you know, many of us have thought even before. But fascinating it is, it is, you know, I've encouraged people to be faithful in their tithe and their regular offerings and to support the cause of God and to help others and so on. But in this area of helping the poor, sometimes we have kind of a mental break there. And we think in terms of, well, you know, these people could be, you know, just like me if they were willing to work or if they would get an education or whatever it is. But remember that God has allowed the poor to be here so that he can test our reaction to that. It's pretty fascinating. The Bible indicates the poor we always have with us. 
So we're going to look at another area, which I think is fascinating also. We can show by our fruits how we help. And I mentioned volume two of the testimonies, page 660 earlier. And this is that little statement I wanted to point out from it. When the master comes, the faithful servant is prepared to return him both principal and interest. And by his fruits, he can show the increase of talents that he has gained to return to the master. The faithful servant will then have done his work, and the master whose reward is with him to give every man according as his work shall be will return to that faithful servant both principal and interest. A second factor in this idea of last things when we prepare for them is that ultimately, as disciples of Christ, we have the great gospel commission at heart. That means that we want to be a part of finishing the work. Now, things have changed over the years. There were times years ago when people were willing to give their lives to go as a missionary. And uh, some of the very famous mission stations in Africa, like Seleucy College and so on, if you go, there's a cemetery on the property, and you can go and see the names of missionaries who have gone over there, sometimes husband and wife and children who contracted you know, diseases that were unknown to them, and they're all buried there. But as... Uh, People began to think in terms of, uh, well, what? maybe I'm making so much money I shouldn't go. People began to send money instead of uh, going themselves. And now we're facing a situation in the world where people are too busy and too selfish to either go or send anything. And you can just note that the offerings of people, that is beyond their tithe, have been decreasing over the years. Uh, it's, it's really quite an incredible thing. So I personally feel it would be a real awesome thing for a family to say, we want to see God's work finished. We're willing to take a part and we're willing to do this. In addition to being faithful in our regular tithes and offerings, we'd like to take on a project. We'd like to sponsor a missionary or sponsor a young man through school in India or something like that to help in the advancement of of the work. Many people know that native workers who know the culture and the language are actually much more efficient many times in taking the gospel, but they don't have the resources to do it. So how can we do that? We can help others. We can help poor people. As uh, I've mentioned earlier, he says, you've done it under the least of these. And what's the next word? My brethren. Now, this is a critical thing to understand. God is asking us actually to help the worthy poor, the poor within the Christian community, if you please. Now, this is an incredible thing to understand. The least of these, my brethren. So our first works of charity should be among those who are less fortunate in the household of God. And I'd like for you to think about that perspective. Remember that uh, when we go to heaven, we're not going to have any money in our pockets. It's pretty fascinating. We've all heard the stories about people who've taken gold with them some way. These are fictitious stories, or fictitious, of course, because nobody's going to take anything with them. But when they get there, they find that is what they use to pave the streets. The fact is, God doesn't need our money, and we won't need it there either. And I want to give you a couple of stories to help you understand how significant this is. Most of us have uh, remembered back in our lives some very, very fascinating things that we have heard, sometimes real hurtful things that people have said, and it takes years to get over it. But I want to tell you just real quickly two things that have happened to me that I feel may help you to think back on your own life of how significant things happen to you. And these are really significant. Back in the early 80s, I decided to take a study leave and go to law school, and I was quite naive about law in those days. 
and I showed up at the Georgia State University Law School and asked for an application, and they said, well, have you taken the law school admissions test? Believe me, I didn't even know there was such a thing. So I had to go and bone up on that and take the law school admissions test, and I thought, well, you know, I'm married and settled in the middle of my career and just taking the study break, so I'll probably be at the top of my class because all these other people have social lives to worry about and so on. Believe me, it was a very difficult thing. And uh, I can just tell you, we had about 220 people that were accepted in my class, and we had 116 graduate with my class, which means that about half of them actually dropped out. I can remember going to the uh, uh, bulletin board where they posted the grades, and you would look for your number to see what you made in a certain score. And I've seen grown people just throw their books up in the air and let them fall down and walk out and never come back. They're just very, very discouraged. So frankly, I was happy to be right in the middle of my class as I finished you know, uh, two and a half years later, close to three years later from that. But it's fascinating to understand when you go to law school, graduating is one thing, but passing the bar is another thing altogether. So in Georgia, where I went to law school, uh, the, the year before, I think only 35% of the people had passed it the first time. And there was also another unusual thing, and that was that someone had paid a practicing attorney to sit in and take the exam for him, which is very, very illegal. And the person was caught, was disbarred, and both he and the other one suffered criminal penalties for it. But the interesting thing was, so that they would avoid that, anybody who took the exam had to go to the sheriff's office, get their picture made straight on a side view mugshot and get all 10 of their fingers printed or, or uh, their fingerprints put on a card so I had to roll them all through all 10 fingers through the blotter and put it on there and then those two pictures and those were on your your desk in front of you through the full two days of the uh, bar exam and uh, I had you know taken some bar review courses and so on for it and I was very excited about hopefully you know passing the bar and becoming a member of the of Georgia bar but you don't get the results until 90 days are up. And uh, this is pretty interesting. They said, don't call us. We're not going to tell you anything on the phone. You're going to get it. We're going to mail everybody's results on Friday. You're going to get them on Monday. So on Monday, I called my wife from the office. And I, I called her Cat, and I said, Cat, don't get the mail today. Let me get it. And she understood. It was a big deal. But I had been told that if you pass, you got this big 8.5 by 11 size manila envelope with all the information about your results and how to be sworn into the Supreme the court and then go to the Supreme Court and all those things. And if you didn't pass, you get a regular envelope, and you they tell you when the next exam is given. So I went that day, and of course, when I got there, the mailbox was empty. I was in my excitement, I beat the mailman. But in a few minutes, he came putting along his little Nissan pickup and put my mail in and waved to me and went on his way. Of course, he didn't realize how uh, uh, significant that day's mail would be for me. But when I looked in the mailbox, there was no big manila envelope. So immediately, I knew I had failed. I mean, I'm just like, you know, 65% of the people the year before. But I was very, very upset by that because I had actually commuted a round trip of 150 miles a day for three years and uh, to get to law school so we didn't move our family away from our church and school where we were living. And it's pretty fascinating to me to, to realize, looking back on it, how devastating that was to me. And uh, there was a, a number 10 envelope in there from the Board of Bar Examiners. But uh, because it was a small envelope, I knew I had failed, and they were going to tell me when the next exam was and so on. So uh, I started talking uh, right out loud. I said, God, why me? You know I did this for you and so on. And I became so nervous that I, was, I actually couldn't stand up. So I sat down beside my mailbox, 
and still talked out loud. Uh, fortunately, I didn't lose my temper or anything, but I was so depressed that it was just incredible. But I said, well, I'll have to open this letter. So I opened it up and pulled it out, a single letter inside. And uh, the top was folded down first and the bottom on top of it. And when I pulled the bottom down, the last line of the letter was showing and it said, good luck in your practice. I will never forget that as long as I live. And I opened it up and it said, congratulations, you've scored sufficiently high to pass the Georgia Bar exam. And it said, under new rules, we'll be sending you the rest of the stuff in another letter. So I then became so excited, I nearly had a heart attack. So you can understand the psychosomatic thing. The reason I'm mentioning to that, good luck in your practice. You know, I kept that letter. It's still in my file today. And I went up and hugged my wife and called my secretary and my mother and all these things. It was so exciting. Well, the thing I want to tell you about is these words mean a lot to us. I'll share one other brief one with you because it's kind of interesting to me. When I proposed to my wife, Kathy, I said, Kathy, don't tell your folks. We'll drive up to uh, Knoxville and talk to them, and uh, I want to you know, ask them the proper way and all of that. So uh, a few days later, we drove up to Knoxville, and uh, we'd been there a number of times before together. So uh, typically when we went in, we would you know, stop and visit or sit on the front porch and talk or have some lemonade in the kitchen or something. But on this particular day when we came, everybody walked into the living room and sat down. I mean, I don't know why they did it, but they just all walked in there and sat down. And then I realized they were all looking at me. So I knew that Kathy had told them, even though I had told her not to. So I was a little bit concerned about that, and I realized, well, there was nothing for me to do but to, to ask them. So I told them that I had you know, asked Kathy to marry me, and I was asking their blessing and all of that. But uh, it was kind of interesting. I tried to make it sound as good as possible that I was you know, finishing school, and I had no student loans, and I already had a job. And you know, I just kept going because I was a little bit nervous. And finally, when I stopped, uh, Kathy's mother spoke first, and she said something I'll never forget. And she said, well, we always let our children make their own mistakes. That's what she said. She didn't say yes. She, she, what she meant was we had trained Kathy to you know, follow good principles, and if she loved me, that they would too. And that, that's been a wonderful experience for all of us. But the fact is, those words stuck in my mind. We always let our children make their own mistakes. So this is an incredible thing. Those two things are main, you know, big things for me. You guys have a lot of them in your own life too. But the words that I really, really want to hear are those words in Matthew 25, uh, where it says in verse 21, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'm going to make you ruler over many things. Well done is the words that we really want to hear. I know you do too. And those words are only spoken to those who manage Christianly. As a concluding statement, I want to say my goal as a committed Christian is to take what God has given me in time, talents, body temple, and my treasure and trade with it until he comes with the perspective of bringing profit to his kingdom. I certainly hope that these have been a blessing to you and that will help you in your lifetime. And we understand that these principles, we can, you can find them yourself, but if you get the book, it's your money, you can find them out there. And may God bless each of you as you practice the principles of financial faithfulness. been listening to It's Your Money with Christian attorney and financial counselor G. Edward Reed. If you'd like to learn more about developing financial strategies from a Christian perspective, call 1-800-328-0525. 
and ask for the companion It's Your Money book and workbook written by Mr. Reed. You can also order individual It's Your Money CDs by name or topic. Call 1-800-328-0525 or visit online at www.adventsource.org. Thank you.